Hello and welcome to The Week in 60 Minutes. I'm your host this week, John Connolly, The Spectator's news editor. Coming up on the show, Harry and Meghan are back in the UK next week. Will drama follow in their wake? I'll speak to Freddie Gray and Valentine Lowe. There's just a week left of the Tory leadership contest. How is the race shaping up? James Forsyth and Isabel Hardman will discuss. Liz Truss made headlines last week for saying that the jury is still out on whether Emmanuel Macron is a friend or foe. If she becomes PM, what will British-French relations look like? I'll be joined by Simon Cooper and Anne-Elizabeth Moutet. Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union, died this week. I'll discuss his legacy with Robert Service. Louise Perry writes in The Spectator this week that it's no longer emasculating to be a stay-at-home dad. What's changed? She'll join me to discuss. And finally, why are investment bankers always portrayed as monsters on screen? I'll speak to Martin van der Weyer about the TV show Industry and his own time in investment banking. Spectator subscription is now better value than ever. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer. And why not subscribe to our YouTube channel as well? Click the subscribe button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon to make sure you never miss an episode. Meghan and Harry are back in the UK next week for a string of public engagements. But with the couple having signed a new Netflix deal, Meghan starting a new podcast, and Harry still barely on talking terms with his brother, how will they be received? The Spectator's deputy editor, Freddie Gray, writes this week's cover piece about the visit. He joins me now alongside Valentine Lowe, the Times Royal correspondent and author of the upcoming book, Courtiers, the hidden power behind the crown. Freddie, Valentine, thank you for joining us on Spectator TV. Now, Freddie, you write in this week's cover piece about Harry and Meghan's upcoming trip to the UK. Um, to start us off, can you tell us a bit about the trip, what they have planned? Well, uh, let me tell you first about the, sort of the genesis of this piece, because um, I think we first discussed it in our editorial conference a couple or maybe three weeks ago, uh, because we knew that Harry and Meghan were planning a trip, uh, and we expected there'd be the usual um, sort of fuss around it and the antagonisms uh, that always seem to appear uh, whenever they are around. Um, but then, as, as the weeks went on, uh, Megan just kept on giving us more material. And in fact, there's almost too much material uh, this week because um, she released the first podcast last week, the, the Arch- Archetypes podcast from her Archerwell uh, audio division. Uh, and then there was this spectacular interview, this 6,000-word uh, extraordinary profile interview that I think everybody agrees is one of the strangest bits of journalism of the last few years. Uh, and, then, um, and then, of course, an, another podcast, because these are now going to be weekly, uh, part of this sort of what people are calling a 12-week war on the Windsor family, uh, disguised as a podcast. Um, and it's just very interesting. And it, it, it's odd to me that it seems to be uh, Megan at the moment that's driving uh, the agenda at the moment. Harry seems to be taking a backseat role. Uh, he appears, he makes sort of guest appearance in the, uh, the podcast, the first podcast, not the second one. Uh, and then in this interview, he sort of appears as a sort of handyman around the house uh, talking about fixing sprinklers and things. Um, but it's, uh, it, it seems to be the Megan show at the moment, but then there's also this lurking thing, which I'm sure Valentine will be able to tell us more about, of the book, the Harry book that's coming. Um, supposed to be by Christmas, uh, maybe delayed now. Um, and that's supposed to contain some real bombshells that are going to make life very uncomfortable for the royal family. So they have become this sort of uh, strange thorn uh, in the monarchy's side. And um, because they're coming next week, 
uh, we're going to be hearing a fair bit more about them. Great. And yeah, Valentine, tell us a little bit about that. So we've got a possibly a Netflix show. We've also got Harry's book. I mean, do you get a sense of what the royal family is most worried about? Uh, I think they're bracing themselves. Um, I don't get the sense they're sort of quaking in their boots because in a, in a way, we probably had the worst of it in the Oprah interview. Now, I think I'm sure Harry's got more things to say. Uh, but does he want to completely detonate his relationship with his own family? I don't know. Uh, there's almost a sense that that, that Megan is uh, more keen to, you know, pull him away from his father. There's that key remark in her interview in the cut where she said that uh, Harry said to her, uh, I, "I've lost my dad." I'm not sure. Harry has completely lost his father. I'm not sure he necessarily would actually say that because although relationship, sorry, although relations are pretty poor between Harry and Charles, that you know, they can communicate. There is something going on there. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure what, what there is to come. Um, and what the delay of the, of the book is, I don't know. Um, we hear all sorts of things. I My guess is, and I don't have any great inside knowledge, my guess is we won't see it this year. Um, I think it's been pushed back, but um, Netflix will presumably be disappointed about that. I mean, I think they would like to have the kind of symbiotic uh, publicity of Netflix, uh, the Netflix series and the books sort of feeding off each other and both promoting each other. Um, so they would probably like it to be out this year. Uh, we'll have to see. And um, whatever happens, it's 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 going to be uh, a fairly explosive book, a very interesting one, because the writer, of course, you know, has got a track record of producing some fantastically interesting books. He did a biography of Andre Agassi, ghosted Agassi's book, which was just unlike any other um, sports biography, really. Um, so, yeah, and as for the palace attitude, well, more importantly, Clarence House attitude, Charles's uh, headquarters attitude, I think they they will try and not rise to the bait uh, unless Harry says something completely awful and very specific. It's just, if it's more kind of generalised uh, slurs on his father, I think they will just do their very best to keep quiet and not fan the flames of this very painful family dispute. And Freddie, you mentioned in your piece that the book might be delayed because of a potential clash with Michelle Obama. Um, do you get the sense that the Obamas are sort of the, the couple that Harry and Meghan want to emulate? Well, Harry and Meghan are sort of coming across as the sort of off-brand Obamas or the, or the royal brand, if you prefer to look at it that way, Obamas. Um, they, they, both couples have deals with Netflix, Spotify, they have publishing deals. Um, and I think Harry and Meghan would like to be like the Obamas in, in the sort of uh, the global mind, if you like. Uh, they'd like to be a sort of royalty that isn't royalty, um, imparting wisdom um, and sort of conspiritualism to everyone. Uh, I don't uh, think they're succeeding on that front because the Obamas do seem to be able to produce content. Um, some people think it's very good. I don't, but some people think it's very good. Uh, and whereas Meghan and Harry seem to have struggled to find the content that's right for them. Archetypes, this new podcast, uh, is does seem to be a success. Uh, Spotify, the charts show that it's number one. It's been listened to uh, by a lot of people, it seems. Um, we don't quite know how many people listen to it because they want to hear it and how many people like me listen to it because they're masochists. 
but I think the, the, the sort of general sense is that they haven't quite delivered on these very, very large multi-million dollar contracts that they have from Netflix, Spotify uh, and the publishers. Uh, and if they, if, if they don't deliver, um, then they're going to leave a lot of people very unhappy. And so they have to give something. And I think what's quite interesting is, like uh, um, Valentin was saying about the book and the ghostwriter, um, with the Netflix director, they've got Liz Garbus, who's a very sort of highbrow almost um, director, film figure. They're not, they're determined to make it look like they're not doing Keeping Up with the Kardashians, but the Meghan and Harry version. Um, the trouble is, it's a grubby business. People do want uh, an insight. And Netflix, however much they might try and do something artistic, uh, they do want um, the dirt, and so does the book, uh, so does the publishers of the book, ultimately. So how are they going to walk this very fine line between sort of reinventing themselves uh, as an interesting Obama-like couple and also giving the public the, the things that they probably want, which is dirt, ultimately? Mm. And fans, and do you think they're going to struggle a bit when that well runs dry, when there are no sort of more scandals to say about the royal family? Do you think that's their only sort of selling point, or do you think they've got more than that? Well, I think we're going to have to watch the Archetypes podcast seriously uh, quite closely because I think there was an interesting difference between episode one and episode two. The first one uh, about ambition, when she spoke to Serena Williams, basically that was a vehicle for talking about herself um, and everything she said about women and ambition was basically uh, talking about Meghan and ambition. the one when she spoke to Mariah Carey about divas, yeah, there was a kind of bit of Megan in there and there was an exchange where Mariah Carey called Megan a diva and Megan pretended uh, in this rather ridiculous way to take it seriously and be offended, but yeah, we weren't fooled for a second. But there was much more content uh, to that podcast. It was less about her, it was more about the subject matter. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, as the podcast series uh, goes on, whether it'll move away um, from Megan onto the, the people and the subjects that she's meant to be talking about. Uh, but yeah, they do have to uh, come up with something else. Um, the thing about being a member of the royal family is that people are interested in you just because you remember the royal family. It's a very peculiar existence. Uh, it's, it's, people have a sort of sheen for being royal, even though they're underneath, underneath it all quite ordinary human beings. Um, and once you step away from the protective embrace uh, of the royal family and, and the sort of gloss that it gives you, people do understandably ask, well, what is, else is there? Uh, now, um, Harry and Meghan have tried to show uh, that there is something else. They've done campaigns in the United States about uh, vaccination, putting it out to uh, countries that can't afford it. Uh, and their trip over here is really, it's about self-validation. Uh, so they're doing a couple of things. They're going to one young, the One Young World Summit, uh, where, where Meghan, Interesting, we're making the speech. Not Harry; he's the role, but he takes us. He takes a back seat there. She'll be making the speech, uh, and then um, they'll be at the World Child. They'll, well, they'll be at an Invictus Games event in Germany, which is Harry's baby. And he, this is him saying, "Listen, Invictus Games, I've not left you behind. I haven't forgotten about you. I'm still behind you." 
uh, and then there'll be a, a well child event in in uh, in the UK as well. Uh, and well child is you know it's a it's a charity that Harry's been very closely involved with. Uh, and he feels, yeah, you know, very sincerely, he feels very passionate about it. He he's got a great empathy with children. He cares a lot about sick children, uh, so it, it does mean a lot to Harry. But this is, I, I kind of see it as their attempt to re- remind the world of their their relevance. Mm. And Freddie, you know, you mentioned at the beginning there that Harry, especially when it comes to the media world, if maybe not the charity world as much, has been sort of taking a back seat to Meghan. Do you get the feeling that he's going to be left out a bit and is maybe a bit less comfortable producing this kind of content or a bit less interested in it and it's kind of been, going to end up being a bit of a loose end? I think perhaps there's a, there's a rather sort of British uh, urge to blame everything on the, and probably, no doubt misogynist and possibly even racist urge to blame everything uh, on Meghan, the, the horror wife uh, who has taken over Harry and sort of possessed him. Uh, I think there's no doubt that she is an extremely strong and controlling personality. I think that's obvious to everyone. Um, But Harry has gone along with it too. He's the one writing this book. He's the one that uh, argued with his family, that split with his family. Uh, They're in this together. Um, What I think is quite interesting at the moment is there's a sort of note of undercurrent of sadness uh, about everything they do. because the sort of the words of the nasty gossip in Hollywood is that they are they're not very uh, loved by the super A-listers, which is what they desperately want to be. They want to be super A-listers, but the the kind of Hollywood elite, if you like, looks down on them. And in fact, they found they found out that um, Hollywood can be just as, if not much more, nasty place uh, than than the British establishment. Um, and so you get the impression they're sort of flitting between these two worlds, uh, the British monarchy uh, and Hollywood, and they haven't really found a place in either, um, perhaps because they muddled what monarchy is with what celebrity is. Um, but it's rather a sad story, I think, uh, and I think it's about to get a bit sadder. Mm. And, and turning to sort of a bit of nastiness, Valentine, I mean, some of the Duchess's harshest words in her most recent interview were towards the British press, I think she said she wouldn't be able to do the school run because she'd be hounded every day, that they perhaps used the N-word against her. I mean, what did you make of those comments? And, and do you think it's going to make their trip, upcoming trip, a bit more difficult? Um, to answer your question in reverse order, I don't think it would make the uh, trip any more difficult because their relations with the British media were already at rock bottom. They basically think they can survive without us. Well, perhaps they can. Um, so I don't think that matters in the slightest. And what did I make of it? Well, Funny things go on inside Megan's head. Um, she comes out with stuff which I don't think she's lying. I think she actually believes it. Um, but it's total nonsense. So the stuff about um, if she was doing the school run in Britain, there'd be a pen of photographers all taking snaps of poor little Archie. I mean, we all know it's total nonsense. Kate takes her kids to school without there being any photographers there because there are rules about this stuff. Um, and Megan should know that. Does she know that? Or has she forgotten that? Or does she just put everything through the prism of her beliefs and it just all gets distorted in her head? It's extraordinary. And the idea that someone or people in the media, whether it's the Royal Rotor or other people or other publications, I don't know, use the word n-word about her children i mean it's shocking and extraordinary and 
to the best of my knowledge, is completely untrue. But I think Megan somehow believes this. I don't, I don't know where her belief comes from. Maybe it came from that sort of notorious Mail Online piece very early, uh, very soon after Megan's name was first revealed in public. And it, it did a piece about her mother and said that Megan was almost straight out of Compton, uh, reference, of course, to an NWA record. Um, and somehow that maybe that became people using the n-word about it. I don't know, but I think the point is, she believes it all, uh, and she's utterly sincere. And perhaps that's quite worrying. Brilliant. Thank you, Valentin, and thank you, Freddie. In a few days' time, we'll find out the winner of the Tory leadership contest and the next prime minister. To discuss the week in politics, I'm joined now by the Spectator's political editor James Forsyth and assistant editor Isabel Hardman. James, Isabel, thank you for joining us on Spectator TV. Um, Isabel, starts off, so we saw the last hustings this week between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Um, do you think we learned anything new from the candidates in this one? Yeah, we did, which was quite a surprise, actually. So it was quite a, a jubilant mood at this hustings. I think partly uh, because people are just relieved that this contest is, you know, finally over. Um, also because the party, the next prime minister, whichever out of the two it is, uh, gets a few days of a sort of breather before the uh, the reality hits the fan, um, to, to paraphrase a popular saying slightly. And um, so there were some striking things, particularly that Liz Truss said. Uh, one was that she, um, she wanted to rule out energy uh, rationing, which you can sort of understand why she'd She'd want to say that that, but um, it's quite a, it's going to be quite a difficult winter, and that this question even came up showed how difficult um, things are going to be for the new prime minister uh, almost immediately. Um, and then the other, which was really really interesting, was um, she was asked to give a read my lips. There will be no new tax, um, no new taxes pledge, and she did indeed rule out uh, new taxes, which I think is an interesting promise to make in the context of um, the Conservative Party over the past few years, which obviously went into the 2019 general election promising um, no tax rises, and uh, lo and behold, it had to abandon that pledge in order to bring in the health and care levy, which is something that um, that Rishi Sunak has, has defended passionately throughout um, this campaign, and Liz Truss has made very clear that she uh, was uh, was against and spoke out against in cabinet. But because she's very loyal, um, she uh, she didn't say anything in public at the time. Um, so you know, it is going to be a very difficult few years for uh, the new prime minister, and to make that kind of pledge. Um, before going into office and before uh, seeing all the details which are going to allow her to or him to make um, a decision on uh, support for households struggling with energy over the winter is quite striking. And, and J James, you know, uh, Team Rishi are saying that the race is possibly still closer than we think. Um, do you think there's anything to that? I, I think the reception he got last night, uh, obviously... The people who go to hustings, you know, you, you can't say for certain that they are representative of the broader membership. But I thought the reception he got last night was very positive. Uh, I think, you know, but I think the polls are the polls. And so, you know, we'll all have to wait and see on Monday. But I mean, the, the, the polls, it would have to be the most spectacular polling miss of, of, of recent times. And like Isabel, I was very struck when Liz Truss was so categorical that there would not be energy rationing this winter. 
this is something that is being talked about in other countries. I've, I've, and I think the kind of question away is, it's a reminder that we don't really know how bad this winter could be. There's a whole spectrum of where it could land from to, you know, uncomfortably high bills, but with a government package to try and, uh, and help households with that, all the way through to a situation where there are blackouts because there simply isn't enough energy uh, to meet demand. And I think this is a reminder of just the sheer level of uncertainty and the sheer level of challenge that whoever wins will face. And as well, whoever takes the reins, as James says, it's a pretty horrific situation coming up in terms of energy. Um, has, has Liz Truss in particular given any sort of more clues about what, how she'll sort of tackle the energy crisis when, if, if she comes into power? No, she hasn't. And uh, she's been, um, well, very clear that she wants to be unclear until she gets into Downing Street and has the full details. So on this... Um, both Trust and her campaign team, who have sometimes sort of given slightly different messages, often a clarification from the campaign team after an event. They've been very clear that they're not ruling anything in or out um, on support for um, people struggling with the cost of living. And again, quite a sort of striking line from Truss, uh, where she said that um, she doesn't want to uh, preempt uh, what, what the next Chancellor um, will do and um, that this is the preserve of the next chancellor almost as though you know the workings of the person she is going to appoint as the next chancellor will be a complete mystery to her and she hasn't even thought of who that could possibly be um, or indeed um, how they might work together he, you know whoever is her next chancellor will be answerable to her um, and she's talked a lot about um, wanting to um, I suppose, disempower the Treasury and go against the Treasury orthodoxy. So it's not as though she wants to appoint an overmighty Chancellor anyway. But she she's basically said that she wants to wait until she gets into Downing Street to see all the details, um, to see what uh, the machinery of government can come up with before uh, announcing that support in a fiscal event. Not an emergency budget, but a fiscal event. Mm. And James, you know, you write in your piece this week in the magazine about the fact that governments lose elections, not oppositions winning them. Um, with that in mind, how, you know, would you be worried taking over the Tory party at this sort of stage? I think you look at the polls, you look at the fact that Labour are now leading on the economy. You know, you obviously have to be worried if you are the Tories. Uh, and I think that the, 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 the challenge in some ways is... I think lots of people, lots of people on the Tory side, say Keir Starmer and Ed Davey are dull. They're not charismatic. Uh, they don't inspire people. But I think the danger is that those those weaknesses also mean that people feel that they're relatively unobjectionable because they don't generate strong emotions. You won't have what you had in 2019, where lots of voters went to vote against Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, uh, and that is the challenge for the Tories in terms of how they hold together their coalition. Uh, without kind of Corbyn to kind of scare people back into line. And then I think there is also just the fact that the, the sheer level of the challenges that this government is facing when, because it's not just energy, it's the fact that, you know, and, and Isabel is more expert on, on, on this than me, given the book she's currently writing, but it's, it's the state of the NHS. And I think the real worry for whoever comes in is how much of this has already happened if you see what I mean how much of uh how how much can you actually realistically do as the new prime minister to better prepare the NHS for this winter or are things essentially already decided before you even get there and you've just got to kind of cross your fingers and hope that it's not a particularly cold winter or that there's not a particularly bad 
flu season. But you know, given what's happening in Australia, you know, there are I think there are worries on that front. And so I think I think this is this is the, the challenge for anyone taking over the job right now. And also the other challenge I would suggest is that you have a, a, a predecessor who won't be shy about making headlines and making news. And you know, Boris Johnson is a celebrity politician, and uh, whatever he says in the coming months is going to be front page news. And finally, James, just to bring it back to your point before about Boris and how he's going to be once he leaves number 10. Um, what do you get a sense of his relationship is with like with Liz Trust now? Do you think he's going to be a pain for her or he's going to try and be a bit more cooperative? I don't think he's going to set out deliberately to cause her problems. But I also think that, you know, he is going to be out on the speech making circuit and, you know, he will... There will be, you know, he will say things and they will be picked up and they will be news. And I also think the other problem is that, you know, if you look at uh, some of his partisans in Parliament and some of the supporters he has in the country, it won't take much for them to start talking about, you know, the Tory king over the water. You know, you look at this, this, this membership polling, you know, if it's accurate, it suggests that he would handsomely win this contest if he was a candidate. And I mean, that, that will be a problem for whoever succeeds him, because when things get tough, there will be people who say, oh, well, what, what, why don't we get Boris back? Now, I think there is, a, there, is a, there is a fundamental problem with that, which is, you know, the Conservative Parliamentary Party had so lost faith in Boris Johnson by the end, but everyone, whether friend or foe, thought that the, the, the outcome of a no-confidence ballot, a second no-confidence ballot, was a foregone conclusion. I, and so I don't see that, you know, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think the opinion of MPs is changing at, 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 at pace, but I think he will generate news and that will be uncomfortable for whoever his successor is. Brilliant. Thank you, James, and thank you, Isabel. If Liz Truss becomes Prime Minister next week, she won't have gone off to the best start with the French. She recently refused to say whether French President Emmanuel Macron was a friend or foe. But will Macron care? And is the relationship between France and Britain actually better than most people think? Simon Cooper, the FT columnist and author, writes in this week's magazine about our love-hate relationship with the French. And he joins me now alongside the journalist Anne-Elizabeth Moutet. Simon and Elizabeth, thank you for joining us on Spectator TV. Now, Simon, the relationship between Truss and Macron hasn't got off to the best start already. I mean, how do you see their relationship playing out once um, or if Truss becomes PM uh, next week? I think there's two main areas of contention. One is Ukraine and the other is the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is part of the whole Brexit argument. So on Ukraine, the UK has been very gung-ho about the war. Ukraine is a traditional ally of Britain. The Conservative Party is generally keen on any war. And uh, Boris Johnson didn't really have any other policies he wanted to do in office. So sort of mobilising the sentiment that Britain is still a superpower is very important to him. France is very different on Ukraine. France is a traditional ally of Russia. And Macron's main belief, and which I think many Western European politicians share, is that the invasion of Ukraine is bad, it's sad, but it's not really our problem. Russia historically does what it likes in Eastern Europe, which is terrible for Eastern Europeans, but they don't come to Paris or Rome or Madrid. And Macron wants to get on with his very long list of uh, reforms of Europe, of France, and he doesn't want to spend the next years, you know, mired in a cost of living crisis, risk of nuclear war. He uh, would much rather shut down this war with a messy ceasefire as soon as that's possible that gives 
Ukraine, that gives Russia a loss of Ukrainian territory, which is what France did after, helped do after the invasion of Georgia by Russia and after Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2014. Now, so there's obviously going to be clashes between France and Britain over this. Northern Ireland Protocol is essentially trust following Johnson's reneging on an agreement that they signed with the EU just a couple of years ago. And France, like most EU members, is hopping mad about this and sees it as a provocation and uh, will uh, have a fight about this. Mm. And, and as Elizabeth, do you think Trust was right then to say, so Sam points out there's you know, a few sticking points there. Do you think Trust was right to say that the jury's still out on whether Macron is a, is a farewell or an ally? I think she was wrong for several reasons. I think she was wrong because you don't say that. And I admit that the conditions in which that crazy pub quiz set up uh, was not, you know, not helpful. And she, she shot back and it, it showed at the very least a sort of slight lack of professionalism in sort of media handling. But I also think she's wrong because I disagree with Simon. I agree with most of he's about to write for The Spectator. I had an early glimpse. But I think, what uh, Simon, what you say about Ukraine is absolutely true, was absolutely true until about four, three, four weeks ago. And now there has been a real U-turn in France in terms of now trying to work for a, uh, a new kind of Western alliance. Macron has made a number extremely belligerent and uh, bellicose and very, very, very sort of strong statements about Ukraine and about Russia. There no longer uh, is uh, this, this whole general inchoate sort of uh, French blog all saying we want peace as fast as possible we want to cease fire uh, totally neglecting the fact that that would essentially give Putin what he wants I also think that uh, uh, France has a a good uh, military class and even though they skew pro-Russian uh, more often than not, they have noticed that Ukraine is actually winning this war. It doesn't mean that the war is over, but it, you know, when when it was supposed to be a three-day military operation, that would take uh, Kiev uh, easily. And now there is a counteroffensive to retake uh, Kherson. We're talking about an entirely different situation. I also think that on this one, um, it's 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 a window of opportunity because I think the reason Macron is suddenly being so gung ho is slightly uh, uh, I mean, slightly uh, uh, self-serving in that yes, he realizes. I totally agree with Simon. He, he realizes that his rentrée, uh, uh, you know, this autumn is going to be difficult. Um, cost of living is shot up. Inflation has shot up. People are angry. He has a fractious parliament with no clear majority. And therefore, what he wants is to point at the guilty party who's not him, and that's Putin. And uh, as long as he does that, but, you know, in in a sense, sort of has finally a sort of more honourable attitude for France, uh, I would say Liz Truss would really should grab this with both hands. And and, uh, she might be able to work out more understanding on some aspects of Brexit, precisely out of Brexit dispositions, precisely because she might now be getting some help on on the world stage. Macron not only wants to sort of strengthen the Western alliance within NATO, he also has said, and his his, uh, uh, pet think tankers have started saying things like they want, there should be a sort of extension of what is called the Quad, which is a a Biden creation uh, uh, with um, Australia, the US, 
India and Japan, and the idea is to add two maritime powers, which are France and Britain, and that is really good a good opportunity to let bygones for bygones. I have noticed that uh, in, 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 in a week or so, there's a meeting between uh, um, serious uh, um, uh, um, uh, military leaders between France and the UK, and I suspect that this has got to do with the fact that Australia has just realised that getting submarines delivered in 2040 is not soon enough, and we might see a slight sort of amendment to the uh, 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 the, the sort of the fiasco of French submarines not being bought uh, by the Australian government. All of this is very good news because we need a united West. Uh, and therefore, I'm, I'm more optimistic on, on, and, uh, on, on what France could be bringing uh, this time than uh, up till now the last, in, the, in the last six months. Mm, that's a really interesting point. I mean, Simon, you mentioned in your piece that a lot of French hostility towards Brexit is a little bit about their sort of fear of Frexit. Now that Le Pen has been seen off again by Macron, do you think there's an opportunity for a softening of the line there or do you think that's still not going to happen? I mean, Frexit is off the table, even Le Pen stopped proposing it. There is no exit movement in any EU country that I can see. Brexit kind of put that to bed because Brexit is not perceived as a success uh, in European countries. But I think that the Europeans are generally going to remain firm. They treasure the single market and they don't want Britain to have access to it if Britain is not going to observe the full freedoms. That's just it. So there is very little wiggle room. It's not like this is an ongoing negotiation. The other thing is, in any field of business, if you become known as a dishonest person who goes back on his word, people are not going to do business with you. That is true whether you you know deal in wine or secondhand books or in footballers. If you acquire a reputation for reneging on your promises, people remember that. It's a small circle. And Boris Johnson acquired that reputation, having agreed to a divorce treaty with the Northern Ireland Protocol. Just two years later, he says, and now Liz Truss says, we we actually regret it. We didn't mean it. Uh, We're going to unilaterally change parts of it. And whatever the merits of the argument, that tars you as a dishonest broker. And it's not just in France. This is a widely held perception in many European capitals and in Brussels. And I think that trust by pushing ahead with the Northern Ireland Protocol in Parliament, which will take up a huge amount of parliamentary time, not so arguments with the Lords, is going to keep that front and centre. And so she is not doing anything, and I don't think she wants to do anything, to regain trust in Paris, Brussels or elsewhere. And and Elizabeth, as as Simon says there, Liz Truss is going to revisit the Northern Ireland Protocol. Do you think that will define the relationship as well a bit? Yes. And honestly, it was not something that the French were thinking about until it was explained to them. And the first thing was the French are, you know, the British sort of muddle through when they get somewhere. They're very pragmatic. Uh, The French like a theory first and then applying the theory. And they could see from the start that the whole idea about the border was, you know, there was no theory whatsoever and it was not going to work. And there were sort of, you know, interesting words from Boris Johnson saying we can do this with modern technology and it came to naught. And the result is that, in effect, what was pushed through, including up to inside Michel Barnier's office in Brussels, where the British delegation were fighting among themselves, and Barnier said that he'd never seen anything like this in his life. Uh, it was it was the one thing that struck them as something uh, that was uh, difficult, dangerous, and insulting for an EU country, which is uh, Ireland. Uh, so that thing probably is the moment where 
Uh, and discretion would be the best part of valor for Listrus. She's got to find a different solution. Uh, she's got to work it out with, you know, the the the, uh, 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 the British citizens of Northern Ireland and and the Republic of Ireland. But it is perfectly true that it's something that's only really caught by the French, and quite understandably, you you if you don't go into something as difficult as altering the conditions of a border uh, in 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 a country where there have been recent. Uh, 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 troubles and troubles was a euphemism at the time, and it still is today. Uh, it would be it would be a deal breaker. All the things about you know normal things about access to the market, uh, frictionless sort of visas, stuff like uh, you know passport, whatever that can be worked out. Northern Ireland is going to be a deal breaker, and honestly, it's not it's not the way Britain wants to sort of uh, close its relationship with Europe because. It's um, it's not going to look good, and it is very true that there's going to be support from other countries for exactly the same reasons within the EU. Mm, thank you. And Simon, as a your final thought here, um, you kind of asked this question in your piece. Uh, it's a very interesting one. Um, how much do you think the British-French relationship is defined by leaders and personalities, or do you think the sort of the having the weight of these two great democracies next to each other means that they're going to have a better relationship in future, regardless of who's in charge? And Britain and France have all sorts of successful daily relationships. You've never in history had two great capitals so intimately collected, certainly before the pandemic, and we're starting that again, as Paris and London now. The exchange between these two cities, between these two countries, people living and working in each other's countries, is almost unparalleled in the world. You have a huge amount of trade. None of that is going to go away. I mean, this is in the Bronze Age. People were taking boats from what is now northern France to southern England and back in a day. Of course they did. They had more contact if you lived on the French coast in the north with people in what is now England than they did with people in the French interior who were much harder to reach. So, you know, prime ministers come and go in Britain at a rapid clip nowadays. And it, of course, there's all sorts of daily arguments. It doesn't make much difference. And as I see, it's remarkable, as I say, it's remarkable that two ambitious military powers separated by 20 miles of water have not fought for 200 years. It's a very good relationship. Brilliant. Thank you, Simon. And thank you, Anne-Elizabeth. On Tuesday, the last leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, died. To discuss his influence, character and career, I'm joined by the esteemed historian of the Soviet Union, Robert Service. Robert, thank you for joining us on Spectator TV. Um, Mikhail Gorbachev died this week, aged 91, you know, arguably one of the most important figures in Soviet Union's history. Um, how would you sort of evaluate his, his life and legacy? Well, he destroyed the Soviet Union, so that's a great thing. That's a fantastic achievement. He didn't mean to do it, uh, but he did eventually come round to thinking that really basic reforms of communism were necessary, that would make communism not really like communism anymore. He became a sort of social democrat. And that's, that's, a, that, that's um, an amazing self-transformation. And along with it, he brought the country. So he took Russia towards democracy, almost not intending to do it at various stages, but he pushed himself forward. Uh, um, uh, he, he obviously thought himself to be a man of destiny. And, it, you know, if anyone was in the 20th century, I think he was. He was a great man. Mm. 
And what are your kind of memories of that time as sort of the, the years towards the sort of collapse of the Soviet Union and, and Gorbachev's time as, uh, as leader? Well, sadly, um, great man though he was, he, he was instrumental in destroying the economy, an economy that was already in very steep decline. But I do remember it, at the end of 1990, going into a dairy supermarket, we don't have them in the UK or anywhere else in the world. <laughs> and uh, there were a dozen or two dozen very well-dressed, white, uniformed, dairy assistants. And in the whole of this huge building, this huge dairy supermarket, there wasn't a single half litre of milk. There was no yoghurt. There was nothing to sell apart from some old packets of tea. Now, that, that really brought it home to me a year before the Soviet Union fell, that this economy was, was going down, had gone down the drain, uh, and it had taken the milk with it. Because mm. I wonder, so Gorbachev doesn't have a particularly good um, reputation inside Russia. He's blamed a lot for the economic catastrophe that followed the Soviet Union's collapse. Do you think, do you think he's been a bit unfairly maligned? Do you think it was, it was always going to happen that way? Or, or do you think he bears more responsibility than that? I think he had the, the nous, the wisdom, to see that something really drastic needed to be done. And he did a lot of the drastic necessary things. But the one thing he just could not bring himself to do was introduce a, a full or even semi-full market economy. And that was, the, that was going to be the only thing that saved the Russian people. And that's what they hold against him. He mm. immiserated his own people by his policies. And there's been a lot of talk over the last couple of days about Yeltsin. Mm. And it's been deprecatory talk. Uh, and huge corruption took place under, under Yeltsin. There's no doubt about it. But he did have the guts to introduce some kind of market economy. And Gorbachev just couldn't bring himself to do that. Mm. And looking a bit at the sort of the satellite states that broke away from the Soviet Union, um, how big a decision do you think it was that that Gorbachev kind of didn't send in the army to places like Hungary and Czechoslovakia, It obviously had been done before. Um, how, big, how, how surprising or big a move do you think that was? It, it was a, a, a bold political decision. It did get him a lot of criticism in the armed forces in particular uh, and in the new Congress of People's Deputies. That's certainly true. But we have to bear in mind that Russia was bankrupt. It, mm -hmm. it, couldn't, it couldn't support financially a military uh, intervention. Gorbachev had a moral inhibition about intervening in any case and a political inhibition, but, but I don't think he could have done it in any case. Russia was, was on its knees in 1989, 1990. 
And but he did send the army into the Baltics. So can you maybe talk us through about sort of why he made that decision and uh, after choosing not to intervene elsewhere? Because I think you sort of look at it and you think, well, why why didn't he send the army into one but not the other kind of thing? That's a really interesting uh, point, John. Um, his closest aide, uh, Anatoly Chernyayev, used to say that he had a thing about the Baltic states that he just couldn't see them as being foreign countries. He had a sort of fixed picture of what the Soviet Union was, and he couldn't see it as being an empire which was trapping countries against their will inside it. And this was another of his inhibitions. This was another of his failings for all of his greatness. Uh, this was a man with huge intellectual flaws. Do you sort of see him as quite a, a tragic figure of history almost, in the sense that his reforms opened up the Soviet Union, but then also brought the end to it? Yes. Um, he obviously thought of himself as having failed in, in that respect. But um, I think I've read all of the... Mem he, he kept on writing memoirs, some of which added a little each time to the record. I think he... He didn't feel that he was tragic um, in as much as he thought that he had given Russia in particular the chance of having freedom if it really wanted to, to take it and keep it. Um, I don't think he can be blamed for Putin. Um, Yeltsin it was who, who gave the throne of power to Putin um, and implicitly regretted it very mm. quickly afterwards. You know, one thing about Gorbachev, I really think people ought to know, and that was his down-to-earthness. I remember going to a conference where uh, there was a coffee break and a big queue, and he was ushered to the front of the, the queue, and he refused to stand at the front. He took his um, position, uh, at the back and waited his turn and was jabbering away to the person in front of him and the person behind him, just like an ordinary, uh, an ordinary chap. And that, that really impressed me. It, that wasn't put on. Mm. He, he, he had a, a decent down-to-earth side to him. Right. He wasn't down-to-earth enough to understand what damage he was doing to ordinary people's cost of living conditions. Mm. Am I right, Robert, in saying that you, that you met him as well in the 1990s? Yes, I did. I did. What was your impression um, of him? I had a chat with him, um, and it was going very well, I thought, um, very smoothly, until he, <laughs> in those days, I was writing a biography of Lenin, whom he adored, and uh, you probably weren't quite as sympathetic. <laughs> well, we didn't didn't get that far. He said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Well, I'm writing a biography of uh, Lenin, actually." Um, and he immediately 
closed the conversation down and found some, someone else to talk to. It was too embarrassing for him. He knew this was a touchy subject in the West. I think it was um, another flaw in his thinking. He could never get away from the fact that if only he did things the way that Lenin had done in the last years of Lenin's life, then everything would be hunky-dory in the Soviet Union. This was sheer madness. Absolute madness. Yeah, he's a fascinating character. I mean, you mentioned his humility. I mean, am I right in saying he came from quite a humble background himself? Was his sort of rise up the ranks in the Soviet party kind of preordained or does it sort of involve quite an impressiveness on his part? No, he was a very talented, very, very bright man. Uh, and as a young boy, came from a collective farm in the south of uh, Russia. His family had suffered in the Stalin repressions. Uh, he'd suffered during the German occupation, during the Second World War, but his teachers spotted something really outstanding. And he went to um, the law faculty at Moscow State University. This is like being pulled, pulled out of nowhere and going to, uh, well, let's, let's say Oxford or uh, Cambridge or Yale or Stanford. Um, so he, he suddenly had this chance to, to move out of the village and um, build, a, build a new career for himself that none of his fellow villagers had ever had. Um, um, and, and he remembered conditions in the village. He wanted to do something about Soviet agriculture. He just didn't, he just didn't have the nerve to um, decollectivize uh, agriculture. It, it would have been a very, very tough thing to do, but that's what has been necessary. I mean, why is it that Ukraine became the breadbasket of um, the Mediterranean? in the early 2000s. It was because they decollectivized. Mm. Before that, Ukraine was a, an economic basket case. Mm. So not enough ideological flexibility from him in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Brilliant. Thank, thank you very much, Robert. That was absolutely fascinating. Brilliant. Uh, good to speak to you. Louise Perry writes for The Spectator this week that more and more men are choosing to be stay-at-home dads. A lot of the reason, she says, is to do with class. To explain it, Louise joins me now. Louise, thank you for joining us on Spectator TV. Um, you write for The Spectator this week about how stay-at-home dads are becoming a bit of a, a status symbol. Can you um, tell us a little bit about that, please? So my reasoning is this, right? We've seen this really interesting trend in the last 20 years where it used to be that um, men who did blue-collar jobs did more childcare on average than men who did white collar jobs. And then we've seen a precise reversal since the turn of the century. Combined with the fact that at the same time, we've seen middle-class parents adopting a kind of parenting which is extremely intensive, right? We're talking Montessori, no screen time, you know, organic food, the, whole, the works, everything that takes a lot, of, a lot of time from parents and which ideally also, particularly with something like attachment parenting, which is kind of the extreme end of that, um, encourages parents 
to do childcare themselves as much as possible and to you know disdain things like daycare um, and focus much more on being at home with their children in a really sort of the way I describe in the piece is sort of like cultivating rare orchids right that's the kind of aspirational model of parenting now and my reasoning is looking at these two trends and looking around me as well because we live in a very bougie suburb of London and we've just had a baby and we've got loads of friends who are having babies and so on and the dads of our acquaintance are extremely hands-on, right? That's the phrase that my, that my parents used to use. I think we don't hear it as much now because it's now sort of taken as red. You might still have, say, Jacob Rees-Mogg boasting about the fact that he's never changed a nappy, but I don't think any of the men that we know in our circle would be caught dead admitting that they'd never changed a nappy. That's just taken as being, you know, that's the assumption that you will be hands-on right, right from the very beginning and that you'll actually be quite sort of sometimes a little bit ostentatious about how much you do um, including things like cooking cleaning you know the works doing all of the all of the um, what used to be considered women's work and I think the reason for this has a lot to do with status I mean part of it I'm sure is to do with men acting out of the goodness of their own hearts and genuinely wanting to spend time with their children I mean that was something that came out of the pandemic that a lot of fathers were spending more time at home because of working from home and actually found they actually like their kids <laughs> they actually like being with their kids which is obviously all you know all to the good but I also think that we have to think a little bit about about how status and class feeds into all of this. You know, it used to be, it was really difficult following the second wave to, to, to get dads to do more women's work, right? It was never difficult to persuade women, particularly middle class women, to do men's work. If by that we mean the kind of going out and doing professional job and having all the income and status that comes with doing that. Women were queuing up to do that. That was no problem. What was difficult, though, was persuading men to take on the traditional feminine roles, which was why we ended up with what sociologists call the second shift, where women would go out and they'd spend all day at work and then they come home and they still have to do all the, all the cooking, all the laundry, much more childcare than their, than their husbands were doing and so on, which obviously made women exhausted and miserable and grumpy. Um, I think that that might, starting to, that might be starting to change. I think that we're seeing more... I mean, men are doing records amount of childcare, you know, since records began, particularly, as, as I said, the, the men doing white-collar jobs. And we're also seeing um, this stuff no longer being considered quite as low status. It's no longer just kind of the women's work, the girly work, that you, that you have to sort of argue over who has to do it. It's becoming, I think, much more of a sign of being... Um, a really good parent to be really on board with doing all of this stuff even to the extent that I think the stay-at-home dad who is obviously the most the most extreme manifestation of this kind of approach I think the stay-at-home dad he's still a rarity not as not nearly as rare as he once was still a rarity but I think as time goes by he could become much more of a status symbol particularly because it is now so much more difficult for families to live on a single income combined with the fact that doing the intensive kind of hands-on dad stuff is associated with 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 the upper middle classes right I think just on a purely economic level there's no better way of telling everyone that you're minted than having a dad stay at home right far better than skiing holidays and weight shows and so on so I think just purely based on the status game uh, the stay-at-home dad is definitely here to stay Mm, that's very interesting. And so you mentioned there, so childcare used to be seen as a bit emasculating, a bit more of women's work. Do you think that's completely gone? And 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 if it's maybe not gone in sort of the middle and upper classes, do you think do you think it's maybe still there in, in, in lower classes, for example, working class? It is still definitely the case that women do a lot more of that work. And I think it, it's definitely the case that it is considered 
um, in general to be lower status, even if that's starting to shift. I mean, you see this all the time in how women speak about their work, you know, particularly women in professional jobs, where um, it's kind of taken as read that you'll want to do, you'll want to sort of cultivate the professional side of your life and disdain the domestic side of your life because that's just the lowest status thing, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer. It's always interesting, I think, to look at polling on um, how women actually feel about this and, and it, it's surprisingly common to find women, particularly women who don't do who don't have degrees, who aren't doing kind of interesting high-status professional work, um, who actually much prefer the work of the home if given the choice, despite the lower status attached to it. So I think the thing is that this stuff is... This stuff is vulnerable to, to cultural change because, you know, on the face of it, staying home with your children all day versus going to the office, there's nothing inherently better or worse about either of those options it kind of depends on temperament and your conditions and so on but there are plenty of people who if if the economic factors were taken out and if the status factors were taken out would happily choose the former and some of those people will be men so i can i can readily imagine a situation where if we if we kind of if there was a collective shift in how we regard that kind of work of work of the home you could definitely see more men adopting it as well as more women. And do you think it's good for children that we're seeing a bit more, a few more men sort of take on roles at home? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I write in the piece about the fact that my, my husband works four days a week, so he's at home um, with our son today. In fact, today is a daddy day. Um, mm. And it's really lovely, actually, because I think our son has a much closer relationship than he would otherwise. I think that kind of frosty father model of the past um, it's, yeah. definitely, it's definitely unfashionable, and I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah, you mentioned in the piece that Dennis Thatcher, your, I think your husband describes as a chad, is that right? Yeah. I mean, do you think uh, <laughs> yes. Dennis was, was ahead of his time? <laughs> well, I wonder how he felt about it at the time. I mean, it was kind of, it was an extremely unusual position to be forced into, right? The thing that made me think about it is uh, reading um, Hamish Badenoch's diary in The Spectator a few weeks ago, where he wrote about the experience of being... Of, of, of almost being husband to a prime minister um, and you know the being in the shadow of the successful successful female politician um, which of course Dennis Thatcher he dealt with that many decades before and uh, yeah as, as far as as far as I can tell dealt with it dealt with it masterfully um, I don't think there's anything I think a man who has sufficient confidence and a man who is sufficiently masculine in other areas of his life can definitely be be Dennis Thatcher and be a child at the same time. Mm. Well, on that, um, you mentioned in your piece about the fact that there was an advert that was pulled, by, I think it was by Huggies, about that mocked dads for being a bit incompetent and how that would be sort of unthinkable today. Do, do you think uh, dads are being a bit too sensitive about this and deserve to be, you know, deserve a bit of a ribbing at least still? Oh, well, I mean, I think everyone should, you know, everyone should be made fun of for absolutely everything, right? It, it is really interesting, though, that the... Um, the incompetent dad thing was a really durable comedic trope, um, not just in advertising, but in... I mean, the whole point of advertising jokes is they're sort of lowest common denominator jokes, right? That they're designed to be uh, as appealing as possible to as many people as possible. So they're quite an interesting route, therefore, into understanding culture. And, yeah, the incompetent dad thing um, came up a lot, I suppose, because you can't really make fun of... Um, 
making fun of women for being incompetent mothers isn't as funny. It's more tragic. <laughs> and you also can't make fun of women for being incompetent in the workplace because that's definitely too much of a sore spot. Like you definitely get angry letters for doing that. So I suppose the incompetent dad was the only safe option. Um, and now, but now increasingly it isn't. I don't, yeah, Huggies got had to pull their ads um, about all these dads. The, the premise of the ad was that the dads had to be like confined to a house just with other dads and their babies for five days and presumably keep the, keep the children alive was like the goal, the goal of the challenge. Um, and apparently no one found it very funny, so. Brilliant, thank you very much, Louise. And finally, a new series of the HBO show Industry is coming out in the UK soon. Martin van der Weyer, the Spectator's business editor, speaks to the show's creators in this week's magazine and asks whether it's fair that investment bankers are always portrayed as monsters on screen. To discuss, Martin joins me now. Martin, thank you for joining us on Spectator TV. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, you write in the magazine this week. Well, you interview the creators of the HBO show Industry. Um, to start us off, so how does sort of their portrayal of investment banking sort of compare with yours? With my experience of it, well, I left investment banking actually 30 years ago, uh, but I did catch the sort of first wave of the uh, development of big trading floors and a sort of more macho uh, ambiance and screens everywhere and people shouting and uh, a new culture of sort of uh, selfishness and aggression, you might say, that came with the big money that, that, that arrived in the investment banking scene in the second half of the 1980s. It began and it began with a sort of influx of American firms into London. So naturally enough, I have a particular fascination with how, it, how that world is portrayed in fiction, on screen, in novels and so on. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed industry. But one of the things I thought about it, and friends of mine who are still in that world tend to agree with me, is that it's pretty authentic. I mean, it looks like a real trading floor, even though it's actually built in an old television factory in Cardiff, of all places. Uh, but it looks right. The people look right. They talk the language correctly. If you care to sort of, uh, you know, listen carefully to what they're saying about financial markets, it all kind of makes sense. So I think it's particularly good portrayal. There have been some absolutely bizarre and wild ones, like The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, or American Psycho, he, the, the, the um, uh, anti-hero in that is an investment banker of some sort, isn't he? But this one I thought felt, it felt very real. Yeah, I mean, so you mentioned in the piece that the show has lots of, sort of manipulation, backstabbing, there's no very likeable characters. Do you think that's kind of accurate as well and kind of, kind of sums up the culture? Well, no, and the two writers, Conrad Kay and Mickey Dant, one of the first things they admitted was actually they really quite, they were both investment bankers. One, um, Mickey was at Rothschild doing mergers and acquisitions, and Conrad was at Morgan Stanley as an equity salesman. And they both disliked their jobs because they felt they were, you know, they actually used the phrase imposter syndrome. They felt they really went on top of the job, and one day they were going to be found out. Uh, so they were kind of uncomfortable, they, but they admitted they did like their colleagues, uh, or some of them, and there was some camaraderie, and they did go to the pub on a Friday and so on. And I, I could say the same thing. I still, you know, 30 years later, I'm in touch with 
quite a number of people I worked with in that world who I was fond of them and I'm fond of now. But <laughs> there was also a sort of horridness about it that because it was so competitive and there was so much money at stake, you know, you could um, then just beginning now, you know, just as a matter of normal form, you could earn a life-changing bonus in a single year, but you had to com compete like a savage um, to do that. So people's behaviour changed. They became less trusting of colleagues, le altogether less collegiate and certainly much less loyal to the employer. The employer um, was there to be sort of gamed for, you know, three to five years maximum, take as much as you could out in in bonuses and move to the next employer was the general was the general form. So it's a kind of there are some very unattractive aspects to the the arena, but of course there are, as everywhere, nice people as well as uh, uh, horrid people. And do you think the um, the culture changed around sort of two thousand eight and the financial crash, or do you think that was more from the from the public sides and attitude to bankers? I think that's more on the public side, uh, in the sense that I think the uh, uh, the core of the financial world bounced back pretty rapidly. I mean, we can all remember that famous bit of news video of people leaving the Lehman building with their cardboard boxes. Well, some of those people will have gone and grown organic vegetables or, you know, uh, become stand-up comedians. But a lot of them will have got jobs back in the financial world. They were back on a trading floor somewhere um, within a few months or a year or two and it all carries on and you know new new financial gimmicks and instruments are invented new ways of making money all the time um so you now what's surprising is how how much the same it is even looking as far back as my time my limited and rather unhappy time on trading floors more well over 30 years ago now it's the same it's the same mechanisms of human nature at work. Right. And are there sort of different sort of cultures and attitudes on, on different floors and sections of the bank, for example, like on trading or on the investment side and that kind of thing? Are there particular notorious departments, maybe? Well, so I think actually I could see the contrast between Conrad, who'd been an equity salesman. So he's sitting there cold calling clients, trying to sell them stuff he he was admitting to me he didn't really understand what he was trying to sell. And Mickey, who had been an analyst uh, as a sort of backup to a team of people trying to do mergers and acquisitions deal, that's a much more cerebral, intellectual end of investment banking. And I think in the series, um, the, the, right at the beginning of the first series, there's a guy who dies in the office because he's so stressed out and so overworked. And I think he's one of the people who's having to work all night doing analysis of companies for pitches, for deals and so on. That was rather where I was at a certain point in my career. And it was pretty awful. Um, the trading floor, on the other hand, was livelier, more fun, had a lot of banter, um, a, a lot of machismo, um, a lot of testosterone flying around. Um, and you know sheer sheer aggression and moment to moment changes of markets were what did and still drive people's excitement 
on trading floors. So that's, that's the contrast. But the, the real monsters tended to be on the trading floor and the really clever people tended to be doing the M&A deals and other, other kinds of complex deal making. Martin as well, there's obviously it is a TV show, but there are also lots of portrayals of sort of sex and drugs and that kind of thing. Um, do, you think, do you think that goes on or do you think that's a bit of just a glamorization of TV? Well, I've been asking around about that, whether, you know, I, so what I can say is from my era, uh, I certainly never encountered um, cocaine in the office or out of it, to be perfectly honest. But I think there probably is a lot of that about these days. Uh, the, the, there is quite a high quotient of, of, of sex in the show and, and the boys told me that there could be even more in the second series because the backers of it told them to you know, up the kind of shagging quotient rather than reduce it. Um, the, the fact is in that world there was always a sort of rather sexually charged atmosphere. There are a lot of you know, young and uh, energetic people uh, kept in a sort of enclosed space working very long hours. And naturally enough, for the you know the twenty somethings and the thirty somethings, that was often uppermost in people's minds. And, you know, of course, I don't remember it being quite like that in my era. But some of my friends tell me actually it was. <laughs> anyway, uh, it it adds to the entertainment of the series. There's no doubt about it. But they, one one of my chums who's still in that world, said to me. Maybe one thing about the series that isn't quite right is they seem to party almost every night. Whereas in reality, those kids nowadays, they work such long hours that they probably party very hard on a Friday and a weekend. But on weekday nights, they're too exhausted for all that stuff. So it, it kind of, you know, it's a slightly exaggerated version of reality. But it is, it is very entertaining. And I think it's, I, I say hats off to them for the authenticity. Um, and I did ask them whether they, this was all a kind of on the, on the psychiatrist's couch thing, whether they're trying to work it out of their system. Um, but I think they've probably gone beyond that. It took me a while to work it out of my system. I wrote a terrible um, unpublished thriller about investment banking, and then I became a journalist writing about it and wrote about nothing else for the first few years. But, it, it, you know, we all have to get it out of our systems. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Martin. That's it for this week. Remember, if you enjoy what we do here at The Spectator, you can subscribe to the magazine and to our online content. Join today and you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer. And don't forget to subscribe to The Spectator's YouTube channel. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for watching and do join us again next week. (music) 